Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Trusted CI webinar for October 6, 2020. I'm your host, Jeanette Dopheide. Trusted CI is the NSF Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, and these webinars are part of its mission to deliver high-quality, actionable guidance regarding cybersecurity to the NSF community. More information about Trusted CI can be found at trustedci.org. Uh, today's topic is Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, uh, CMMC, with Trusted CI's Scott Russell. Scott is a senior policy analyst at in Indiana University's Center for Applied Cybersecurity Research, and he's a three-time webinar champion. So he, <laughs> this is his third time presenting um, insights into recent regulatory uh, legislation um, and other areas of um, regulations. Uh, before we begin, I have a few items to note. First, this presentation is being recorded. Second, participants are welcome to ask questions during the session using the chat box. Um, and we have time at the end for questions as well. And with that, um, I will hand things over to Scott. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Jeanette, and thanks for having me back. So yeah, today I'm going to be talking about uh, cybersecurity regulation and specifically the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification or CMMC, which is a new standard that is being uh, put out by the Department of Defense here in the US. All right, so a little bit about my goals for this talk. Um, I will eventually get to talking about the details of CMMC, but I wanna give uh, a fair amount of background and context to just help people understand where this came from, why this is what it is, and eventually uh, a little bit about some of the problems with it and ways I think to potentially improve the cybersecurity regulatory landscape. So that's a lot in an hour. I'm gonna hopefully get through all of it. And um, I will stop after each of these kind of like little sections just to give a, a chance for people to ask questions. All right, so here's just a quick roadmap of what I'm gonna be talking about. Basically just goes over what I just said. And uh, just a couple of caveats. Um, first one is just that life is complicated. I'm simplifying things a fair amount. I would say that I'm giving you like the 80 to 90% correct answer, but there's always gonna be you know, complexities and uh, edge cases that are around the margins. I'm also assuming no prior knowledge, which means I'm probably going to be covering some material that people will think of as review maybe. Um, I'm gonna go pretty quickly through that stuff, but I think it's important to uh, to uh, state that outright for uh, level setting. And finally, this is just a general caveat anytime we're talking about laws. Um, if you're confronted with a legal issue, you should always consult a lawyer or your organization's general counsel. Uh, I can't give you guys a law degree in an hour as much as I would like to try. All right, so I'm gonna start off by talking about the background about just US cybersecurity regulation generally. Like I said, this is gonna be a little bit review for some of you, but I think it's important. And I'll go pretty quickly. So the first point is just what, it, what do I even mean when I say cybersecurity regulation? And the idea I want to get across with this slide is um, it's a lot of potential things, right? Cybersecurity regulation doesn't just mean something like CMMC, which is just controls. Uh, it can include a whole lot of things. I, I call it anything, any requirements for public or private entities designed to manage their cybersecurity related, related risk. Uh, this is just a definition I made up for the purpose of this talk. And the things I would distinguish it from are like privacy laws and cybercrime laws, which I'm just putting in a different category. But the idea here is that cybersecurity regulation could be things like controls. And a control is just a security term we use to like anything you do to mitigate a risk. So you might say putting locks on your doors is a control. Uh, it could also be re reporting requirements, uh, just saying like if you've had a breach, you have to tell people about it. Uh, you could have governance requirements. Uh, there can be cost shifting. And uh, sometimes it could just give people a right of action to sue in the case of like a cybersecurity uh, failing. All right, and so now for a little bit of seventh grade civics, uh, hopefully you all know this, but uh, who is even doing all this regulating? Uh, the first place regulations are gonna come from, laws and regulations, I'm gonna use those terms kind of interchangeably, is Congress. As we all know, Congress is the one who writes the laws. I call them both powerful and lazy because Congress can do almost anything, like it's incredibly powerful, but it very rarely passes laws and especially in tech, very rarely passes laws. That's why if you've probably been to some other talks I've given, I complain about how a lot of our laws are from the 1980s and they don't change that much. Uh, the second place where regulations can come from is the president or the executive. And uh, the 
the president is in general less powerful from a regulatory perspective, but it can be much more aggressive because it's unitary. Uh, the president cannot write new laws, but has a fair amount of uh, discretion when actually uh, executing those laws. And so almost everything we're gonna talk about today uh, derives from the executive. And that's why it's a little bit strange because there is no law from Congress that we're gonna talk about that says, here's how you do cybersecurity. So when the president wants to do something, they have to kind of work within the bounds that Congress has given them. And the final branch, which we're not gonna be talking about today, but it was also important is the courts, which interpret the laws. And cybersecurity regulations can come from courts, but um, it's just gonna be out of scope for today's discussion. And all right, we know where they come from. What are these cybersecurity regulations? And of course, it's complicated. There is no general purpose uh, federal cybersecurity law in the United States. When I say general purpose, it's like, you know, the go-to, it covers everyone, provides the standard. Instead, we have what I'm calling a hodgepodge. And I'm gonna be going into this more detail later, but basically we've just got a whole bunch of relatively narrow stuff that in total makes up the, the regulatory web around cybersecurity. So we have uh, requirements that flow with specific kinds of protected data, like you might see in HIPAA. You have um, actions by regulatory agencies like the SEC or the FDA. You have state laws. And there are federal laws, but they tend to be relatively narrow. They're about facilitating uh, you know, data sharing, as we see down here with the focus, uh, sometimes breach notification. I also highlight this phrase, reasonable security, because a lot of times when people talk about security, they don't actually give you a whole lot of detail. They just say, well, you have to do good security because that goes hand in hand with privacy, but they don't tell you what that means. And so it's not particularly useful. The one big exception to uh, this, the complicated web is FISMA. Now FISMA applies only to the federal government and to people who are basically acting as government uh, entities, even if they're private. So you, like some contractors as well. But FISMA is a cybersecurity law, essentially, you know, Information Security Management Act. It was passed back in 2002, and it tells the government how to deal with its cybersecurity, at least from a controls perspective. So FISMA passes, and uh, Congress writes out some very general stuff, but then kind of says, all right, we don't know all the details about this security stuff. We're going to pass it over to NIST, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, you guys are really good at coming up with like the really nitty gritty details. You guys figure out all that and just tell the government what to do. And so what we got from this is the NIST Risk Management Framework uh, or RMF, where um, I'm not gonna go into all the details about it, but it, it sets out a system for grading systems and then determining what controls to apply to it. So, you know, what locks to apply on what doors, et cetera. The, you know, the cybersecurity version of that. And all of these uh, controls are laid out in this document called NIST Special Publication 853, which is kind of like a big old catalog of security controls. All right, but that only applies to the federal government. And so you might be wondering, uh, you know, well, this is the US, we normally deal with things in sort of like a self-regulatory way. We try to let industry handle things if they can. Uh, how has that worked out? And uh, in general, it hasn't worked out very well. I mean, I think it's fair to say that there's been a bit of a market failure with regard to cybersecurity. There's a bunch of potential reasons for that, but in general, the private sector does not do cybersecurity as well as we would like them to. Uh, it could be because like negative impacts are externalized. And uh, so if we leave them to their own devices, it's probably not gonna solve the problem, at least not to the degree that makes us happy. So the solution that was proposed a couple of years back is this NIST cybersecurity framework. This is confusing because there is also a risk management framework, both by NIST. Uh, the idea with this one is that it is a collaboration between NIST and the private sector. It creates a voluntary standard and it's uh, very focused on uh, protecting critical infrastructure. Uh, I call it less of a roadmap, more of a dictionary. I don't, it, it's not the most useful in terms of, you know, what do you actually do? And it's also not a regulation, it's, it's kind of just like a tool that the government has created. But the idea with all of this was that the US in general has tried to hope that the private sector will solve this problem on its own. And it's created tools to help facilitate that. And in general, that strategy has not worked. That's why I'm talking about all that here. And so since Congress hasn't passed any laws and since the self-regulatory approach hasn't really been working, what are our options? 
And the solution that the federal government has been uh, leaning towards is contracts, because the federal government uh, has contracts with a ton of private sector entities. And the federal government is allowed to impose requirements on people who want to contract with them. This is uh, one of the executive branches like big, uh, you know, workarounds. It's a big source of power. And uh, so you can't regulate the whole private sector without a law from Congress, but you can regula uh, regulate federal contractors and that's a pretty good start. So this is the, the context for why we're going to be talking about CMMC. And uh, the last little bit of context because CMMC is Department of Defense specific is uh, just a little bit of background on what the DOD has historically done in this space. Uh, because they're dealing with uh, national security, the rules are almost always different for them. They tend to write their own standards. And I have a brief history of all the different standards that the DOD has gone through in cybersecurity. Um, I think the big takeaway I want to point out here is um, this is a hard problem and like even the DOD hasn't figured it out yet. In general, they tend to have much better security than uh, a lot of the other parts of the government, but um, they still have this huge problem with uh, their defense industrial base. And so that's the last point of background information we're talking about here is um, even no matter how secure like the military is in its specific, you know, on, the, on its military stuff, it always has to rely on private industry to uh, supply and support its missions. And so there's this enormous web of private sector entities that we call the defense industrial base that basically are the support for the military. And because the defense industrial base is private sector, it has all the same cybersecurity uh, problems as the rest of the private sector. And this is uh, most acutely seen through uh, their supply chain because you know, even if like Boeing and Lockheed Martin and some of the really big name contractors do security pretty well, they have subcontractors and sub-subcontractors and sub-sub-subcontractors and security vulnerabilities can arise from any of those. And so securing the supply chain has become a very big concern in the DOD and they haven't had a really successful way of uh, enforcing cybersecurity requirements on them. And so that's what they're looking to do. And that is the, the final bit of motivating context. So I'll pause for just a second here if anyone has any questions about just this background information. And if not, um, I'll just, I'll keep walking through the sort of uh, specific timeline for CMMC. All right, looks like we got a bunch of cyber experts over here. And so most of that was hopefully review. Uh, all right, so going on to the specific timeline for CMMC, uh, this is my, my little uh, very simplified uh, timeline for sort of like how the world was looking and what got us to where we are right now. So the first is what I'm calling the pre-existing hodgepodge. And this is just that basically in the pre-2009 world, there were a ton of laws with some reference to security. You know, I, and most of the time they were uh, designed to protect some kind of data. So HIPAA protects protected health information. Uh, you know, you have like uh, the, um, there's a law protecting the privacy of uh, video rentals, you know, like from Blockbuster back when that was a thing. You know, there, there's just a ton of data specific laws that say, okay, there's privacy requirements for this data. Oh, and do security too, right? Security is almost always kind of a uh, tack on. And the idea here is that the regulations follow the data. So, uh, you know, we have protected health information somewhere. If you pass that protected health information to another person, the regulation should flow with the data. Otherwise, it would be unprotected when you pass it to someone else and the law is not really accomplishing its job. But the problem with this is that every federal agency had its own policies for how to protect this data. Uh, so we had a lack of uniformity. There was pretty weak enforcement. And there was just a general, I would say, uh, I don't want to call it a total failure, but there were problems when you were transferring this to uh, contractors and third parties uh, outside of the government who would not be following the, uh, the security requirements that the uh, agency had put in place for itself. So this is the pre-existing hodgepodge, a bunch of laws all over the place and they're kind of inconsistently followed. So in 2009, uh, the Obama administration basically said, all right, this is a problem. We need to standardize the hodgepodge. And so the idea here was to consolidate all of these different types of regulated unclassified data into a single category called CUI. I'm simplifying a little bit if people know more about CUI that there's technically two levels, but for our purpose, just think of this as one type of data 
is it regulated and unclassified? It's CUI, and hence the name controlled unclassified. Classified data is just in a whole other category. I'm not going to talk about that here. And uh, in addition to basically creating a single type of data, it also unified the controls required. So instead of every government agency having its own requirements for how it handles specific kinds of data, instead we said, no, everyone's going to be doing the same stuff. And to um, set out the controls for this, once again, we turned to NIST and uh, asked NIST to uh, create a control set that said, what are the requirements that sh we should have to do for CUI? So they created this document called NIST SP-800-171. It is essentially a mini version of NIST SP-853, which you might remember when, from our discussion about FISMA. Uh, basically, it, you know, if 853 is the full dictionary, uh, 800 is the subset of the dictionary focused on confidentiality controls. So 800 is focused on confidentiality. The reason for that being most of the laws that um, inform controlled and classified information are privacy laws. And so confidentiality is obviously going to be a primary concern there. Uh, and there's also a, a, a DOD specific version of this in DFARS. Um, and the way that CUI was supposed to be work is um, because it's the federal government and we can't just regulate the private sector. I mean, because it's the executive branch and we can't just regulate the private sector uh, because we want to, uh, we have to do it through contracts. So we say, okay, we've got all these laws and we've now standardized how those laws apply. Now let's actually make sure that the, uh, the controls flow with the data. So if you're anyone who's been dealing with uh, contracts with the federal government has probably had to deal with CUI to some extent, or at least has heard of that term. And that's where all this is coming from. So that was the solution in 2009, and it took several years before it actually was sort of becoming fully implemented. But there have been problems ever since. Uh, the most fundamental is that there is not a uh, scalable enforcement mechanism. There's a little asterisk here because there's a little bit of complexity around that. But um, they, bas and they basically admitted in some uh, uh, forums that this was a system that was based on trust. That um, we put these things, we put these controls requirements in our contracts, but we don't really have a way of ensuring that people are actually doing the controls. And we don't, uh, we don't like check to see that they're doing the controls before you get the contract. So it's, it's a, you know, based on trust. Second big problem is that almost no one was actually 100% compliant. Uh, you would find basic controls were not being universally applied. There are a bunch of like IG type reports that kind of go through the, all of the problems that people have when actually trying to implement these controls. Uh, I, you know, I went to uh, one presentation where uh, a, a group of auditors basically said that every single organization that they had analyzed was 100% gap, meaning that they had not correct, fully correctly implemented any of the controls, right? They were partial on all of them but they hadn't actually gotten anything completely right. And uh, there's a bunch of potential reasons for this. You know, controls can be vague and subject to interpretation. Uh, in general, there was no really great solution for small to medium businesses who maybe don't have the budgets to implement all of these controls. There's like 110 in uh, 800-171. And I note that all of this was uh, despite close to 10 years of lead up time. So we had a long time to prep for this and it still hasn't really worked. So the DOD, who has been having this problem as much as the, uh, the rest of the federal government, said, all right, we need to kind of take matters into our own hands. We're going to create our own standard. And so we announced CMMC in uh, March of 2019, which feels like a really long time ago now, but it was not that long ago. And it was a direct reaction to the perceived failures of uh, the CUI program and 800-171. So the new model basically says, all right, we're gonna draw from all these existing standards and uh, we're gonna create our new standard that's going to be like the one standard to rule them all. So, um, you know, we're not creating controls from scratch. We're kind of taking from stuff that people are familiar with. Uh, we have this goal of enterprise certification where we don't just wanna go to places and say, oh yeah, you've got a safe that is certified for holding PHI. We want to say we want to see if your whole organization is okay to hold PHI because you might have a safe, but if you don't use it appropriately, then that's just as much of a problem. Uh, there's a lot more focus on the verification of controls. So rather than just stating you have to do them, they want to check. They say you're not going to get your contract until you've actually proved that you have all the controls in place, and it applies to everyone. 
So anyone who does business with the uh, Department of Defense is going to have a, to deal with CMMC. And this was all stated basically at the outset. These were all the goals. And uh, the final point at the point at the time of announcement was that it had a very fast timeline. The original plan was to have a full rollout of CMMC by now, probably even a little bit uh, past, you know, like a month ago. Where so from March 2019 until let's say uh, August 2020, they wanted to uh, create, promulgate, and implement a full regulatory cybersecurity regulatory system for the entire defense industrial base, which is about 300,000 contractors. So almost immediately there were problems. Uh, the biggest one was the timeline. You know, they had very aggressive timelines, and consistently they have not been met, and so they keep kind of being pushed back. Uh, the concept of enterprise security, which uh, understandable if you're if you're seeing problems with the sort of enclave specific approach, uh, has also received pushback because we've never really done that before, as in as far as security regulations go, and so all of the standards that they're pulling from were not designed with uh, enterprise-wide security in mind. Uh, there was a problem of where are the auditors, because one of the designs of CMMC was that uh, it was going to use the private sector. It was going to basically state outright that there were going to be these requirements and then say private sector auditors should arise up to meet that market demand. But there was a problem of, well, who are they? Who's going to train them? How long is it going to take to train them and certify them? So as time was progressing, this, this feeds into the timeline point, uh, there were no auditors. And so we're like, what's going on here? We just had the first batch of auditors finish their uh, training, I think about a month ago. Um, in CMMC, there was explicitly stated there were going to be no plans of action or milestones. So this is something that arose from the FISMA world, which basically said, all right, you've got a whole bunch of controls that are required, but if you don't have them all implemented, you can put in place something called a POAM, which says, all right, here's my plan for how I'm going to implement this over a certain period of time. So it was a little bit of a get out of jail free card for controls that you haven't implemented yet because you don't have to have it implemented if you have a plan to implement it. CMMC looked at that and said, no, we don't like that because that just means you, don't, you haven't done the control yet. It's like a promise to the control in the future. Well, we need it now. Otherwise, you don't get our contract. So CMMC said, uh, no POAMs, you have to have your controls or you're not gonna get your contract. And I point out here that we didn't even really know what the controls were for CMMC until around January of this year. They had been you know, incrementally putting out different versions that were more and more complete, but uh, the final version didn't come out until January. And so they were basically saying, you know, part of their original theory was, we're gonna tell you the controls in January and you have to have them fully implemented and verified by you know, August, September very tight timeline. And there were just persistent unanswered questions. People weren't sure how recertification was going to work, how the costs were going to work. Just there were a ton of governance questions about, you know, how are we going to handle exceptions? Are there going to be exceptions, uh, appeals, anything like that? So that's the brief timeline of how we got from the pre-COI hodgepodge to CMMC. I'll pause again if uh, anyone has any uh, specific questions on that content. Otherwise, I'll keep moving on to talking about the standard as it exists right now. All right, I'm going to infer that people are, are trying to get to the, the juicy stuff. All right. So CMMC, some of this is going to be repeated from uh, previously. Some of it's going to be a little bit different. So the overview of how CMMC works right now I, th I think of the key points as um, one, it applies to all DOD contractors and subcontractors. So anyone who's doing business with the Department of Defense is going to have a CMMC level of some sort that they have to comply with. It's going to ha it has multiple different levels, there's five. And so you might only have to be level one, which is pr relatively lax, but everyone's gonna have something. Uh, the second key point is that it's a compliance regime, which basically means it, it states outright you have to do this many uh, requirements um, and there's no wiggle room, right? There's no POAMs. It's just, you have to do this or else you're not compliant. 
number three, it, it all is going to be uh, passed through contract requirements. We actually just saw uh, the DOD put out a DFARS clause that basically incorporates CMMC. And uh, with those contract requirements, there is accreditation. So you actually have to be accredited for the level required in the contract. Otherwise, you can't bid on the contract. Actually, I, sh I, sh I should take that back. That has changed recently. They have said, you can bid on the contract, but you cannot be awarded the contract until you have been accredited at your current contract level. That's, a, that's a, either a recent change or a recent clarification. Uh, all of the uh, accreditation is going to be done by private sector auditors, which just means that uh, you want to bid on a contract, you look at the contract and says, okay, this is level three requirement. I need to go get one of these auditors to certify me to be level three before I can actually be awarded that contract. It has complete flow down, which uh, goes back to the first point that it applies to contractors and subcontractors. Uh, flow down basically just means uh, if it's in your contract, you have to flow it down to any of your subcontracts. So you have to like repeat the clause in any uh, additional contracts that you might have. That way you can't, you can't say I'm doing it, but you know, all of my subcontractors, you know, get out scot-free. And it is a five level maturity model. Uh, maturity model is the term that they use. Um, I think that's a little bit confusing if you're familiar with maturity models. I would just say it's, it's just five levels. There's five levels to the standard. And I'll go through the specific levels in a little bit more detail, I think on the next slide. The uh, focus of CMMC is on two different uh, things called practices and processes. Um, these are newish terms. I, I don't pretend that I fully understand them, but I think of them basically as practices are controls and uh, processes are maturity around the implementation of controls. And um, okay, yeah, and uh, additional point about the governance of CMMC is that uh, the DOD, when it set this up, basically said, um, look, we want to like, we want this thing to happen, but we think the private sector is better at dealing with this kind of stuff. So we want the private sector to set up an accreditation body, which is basically going to be in charge of uh, accrediting all of the private sector auditors. So the DOD says, we don't want to handle that. You private sector are going to be better at it. And so I was actually at the meeting where they just, they basically talked to the community of people who are interested in CMMC and said, yeah, we want you guys to create this entity. You know, you guys can figure out the, the structure, the governance, all that kind of stuff, but we want you to be in charge of it. We create this standard, but we want you guys to really be in charge of making sure it happens. So the CMMC accreditation body or AB, it's a private sector nonprofit. Its job is primarily to uh, create the training materials that are needed to train the auditors. It is the one that accredits the auditors and the auditing organizations. It's also in charge of managing uh, disputes and appeals and stuff like that. So most of the governance is going to be happening on this accreditation body side. Uh, the DOD plays a relatively minor role. I also note that I think it's a little bit unclear because uh, they led the development of the standard and they have a memorandum of understanding with the accreditation body, which um, I haven't been able to read, unfortunately, I don't think it's public. But it's not totally clear to me, uh, like what will happen if the accreditation body and the DOD have like disputes or if the accreditation body uh, puts out uh, training materials that conflict with how the DOD like wants a specific control to be implemented. Like if the accreditation body is a little bit more lax on some controls than the DOD wants. It's not totally clear to me like who wins in that dispute. And um, yeah, so the first uh, batch of assessors was, uh, went out in uh, August uh, 31st. And um, all right, and the current plan, that's right. So originally the thought was all of this stuff is going to be in place basically by now. Uh, I, from the beginning, I think a lot of people realized that was pretty unrealistic. The new plan is to have a relatively small number of contracts going out this year. Uh, the numbers I've been hearing are 10 to 15. I haven't seen specific details on that yet though. With the idea that there will be full application like five years from now, five or six years. Uh, these dates have been moving around a little bit. I think 2025 September was the most recent date I saw. Um, additionally, uh, instead of having uh, institution-wide uh, certification, they've said institutions can pick what needs to be accredited. So basically you can point, you can call up your auditor and say, I want you to accredit uh, this, you know, this enclave basically 
for whatever level I need and that the auditors will only look inside of that enclave. Uh, still has complete flow down. And uh, the, the fundamental idea here is basically a phase rollout. So kind of learn as we go. Uh, most of the initial contracts are going to be uh, pretty big ticket contractors. Uh, we've also learned that um, they're basically, you can't put CMMC into a contract uh, without getting the express approval of uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. So uh, program officers can't just put this in there because they want it to be there. It has to be approved by someone pretty high up. And um, this third point, I'm sorry, is incorrect. This is just recently changed that uh, certification is not required to bid on the contract, but as I said before, it is required to be awarded the contract. So if you think that there's like bid award and then actual like receiving it, uh, you can bid on it without the controls, but you have to have the controls in place before you can be awarded. Uh, in practice, I'm not sure how much of a help that is for some people, other than that you don't have to pay for the certification and uh, until after you've been uh, awarded. But otherwise, if you don't have the controls, the time between bid and award is probably not enough time to get the controls in place. And you're probably not going to want to uh, spend all that money on controls without knowing you've been awarded the contract yet. And uh, it's intended to iter iteratively refine the requirements uh, over time. Uh, Katie Arrington, who's kind of the uh, spearhead of this whole program, has basically said that security changes, like the threats uh, change, the you know, this technology environment changes and the standard should change with it. So um, the, and I think she said, you know, if the standard hasn't changed in three years or five years that she's not doing her job right. And uh, in addition to this certification, you have to recertify roughly every three years. Okay, so as for what the structure actually looks like of the uh, quote maturity model, as I said before, there's five levels. First level just called basic cyber hygiene practices. Uh, anyone who's familiar with FAR uh, 52.20421, it's basically like basic uh, contractual requirements. These have been around for a while. They've just been incorporated. So again, pretty, pretty rudimentary. And level one, as far as like processes go, basically admits that you can do it everything in an ad hoc basis. Like that's the process level requirements. Level two documented Level two is kind of weird because level one applies to everyone. No matter who you are, you're going to have to do at least level one if you are dealing with CMMC. Uh, and level three is uh, CUI, basically. If you're managing CUI, you're going to get uh, CMMC level three. Level two, they've kind of said uh, they don't plan on using. It's just a stepping stone between levels one and three. Uh, so it's not expected to be in any contracts. At least that's what they've said right now. That could obviously change. But um, companies might try to use the fact that they have level two as a competitive advantage when bidding on contracts. So you might say there's two companies, both are offering like the same price, but one is saying, hey, we've got CMMC level two. The other one is only saying we've got level one. Level two might win out. Level three, as I said, is CUI or um, you know specifically the DFARS clause. Uh, it has a couple of additional controls, but basically if you're handling controlled and classified information, you're going to get level three, at least insofar as you are hand where you're handling that control and classified information. Levels four and five are basically reserved for people with um, really high level threats. So if you're um, like, I'm guessing a lot of listeners are today in sort of like a research environment, I would say pretty unlikely that you're going to be dealing with levels four and five. These are reserved for the big defense contractors having really important uh, clients, I mean, really important contracts. Um, there, there is some language that's been used to characterize these. I'm sorry, I don't have it here in front of me. Um, additionally, uh, the maturity model is all additive controls. So from level one to level two, level two has all of level one's controls plus some more. Level three has all of two and one plus a couple more, level four and so on and so forth. So. Uh, that's nice if you're trying to like incrementally improve from like level one to level three that, you know, you don't, there's not, you're not wasting any effort there. And uh, yeah, it has progressive process improvement. So basically from level one to level five, the uh, amount of process required just increases. All right. So I will pause. Wait, let me see if I can go back. I am sorry. 
yeah, I'll pause there if anyone has any questions. Um, we had a, uh, maybe a, perhaps a clarifying comment a little earlier when you were talking about um, contractors. This person said subcontractors don't have to have the same CMMC level as the prime contractor. They have to meet the level appropriate to the data they are going to receive. Yes, that's right. So um, yeah, if we go back, when we think about this as just a data focused uh, regime, which is it seems to be turning into, uh, you can basically say if you have federal contract information, which is like a certain kind of information that's relatively uh, low sensitivity, uh, level one applies. And so if you're only going, so your subcontractors don't have to have your highest level. Uh, they only have to have a level high, uh, you know, commensurate with the uh, level of the data that they're protecting. So if your subcontractors are handling CUI, they're going to have to do at least level three. Uh, if they're only handling basic federal contract information, that's only level one. Etc. Um, we have another question here. Any clarity on how CMMC will apply to other types of agreements, grants, cooperative agreements, etc.? Yeah, that's a really good question. This is something that I have put under a little bit uncertain, but um, the current language only applies to contracts. Now, whenever there, there's there's a lot of um, optimistic uh, talk about how CMMC will expand as a standard. So um, there's definitely talk that if this thing is very successful, then uh, other people are going to start using it and it might expand into other areas like grants and contracts. But as of right now, it's going through the DFARS system and DFARS only applies to contracts. Uh, it's possible that your grant or cooperative agreement might try to incorporate it anyways. I don't, I don't know of anything that would stop them from doing that, but it's not going to be required on the same level that is in contracts right now. And then a quick follow-up before we go to the next question. Um, any comment and discussions regarding federal agencies adopting CMMC, um, other federal agencies, I should say. Uh, they recently saw an article about GSA, including CMMC. Yeah, okay. So, um, there was, a, so again, there's sort of like the optimistic take, which is if CMMC is a, is a massive success that other people are going to start using it too. Uh, there was a, a GSA, um, I forget exactly what they put out, but basically it was incorporating some CMMC-like language. Uh, my read of that was a little bit less optimistic and more just uh, reality focused, where the GSA was basically putting out... Um, requirements for basic contracting, like kind of bulk, per, you know, if you're, if you're buying pencils or something like that, and uh, there are contracts that go with all of those. And I think what was happening there is that they were basically updating their language to be um, in line with CMMC. But uh, as of yet, I haven't heard of any other federal agencies explicitly saying, oh no, we're using CMMC in our contracts too. And also, yeah, I see a comment here that says, uh, Katie Arrington has stated that grants will be required to be CMMC certified. Um, that's definitely possible. I have not seen the structure for that yet because like I said, uh, DFARS is a pretty well-established process. It might be just informally they're all putting uh, grants or they might be um, other avenues that are going on behind the scenes that I haven't seen fully yet. Um, and just to clarify, Katie Arrington is the Chief Information Security Officer for Acquisition at the Department of Defense. Um, and then yes. we've got one more question. Um, do you need to have controls fully implemented across the enterprise to move from one maturity level to another? No. So yeah, that's a good question. And it goes back to the sort of the weirdness of the initial goal of enterprise-wide security and the uh, trend towards being more data specific again. I, I, they still occasionally use enterprise-wide language, but basically when you get certified, you just have to say to your, you know, you have your auditor who comes in and will actually do the certification. You are able to tell them certify this space to be, uh, you know, whatever, level three compliant, and uh, then you're good. So it might be that you only have your one room that is like my CUI room, and everything in there is uh, level three compliant and everything outside is nothing. And that's presumably fine. The, again, this has been a sort of a, a moving target in my, from what I've seen. Uh, there was some talk, I think that maybe like your entire enterprise has to be level one, 
but anything higher than level one can be, uh, you know, enclave specific. I think with the current language, it's fair to say that any, any of these levels could be enclave. So it's basically, you know, it follows the data. So you might say, where does the CUI go? That's the area that I need to get level three certified. Where does the federal contracting information go? That's what has to be level one certified. And levels four and five basically also track with CUI. They just have additional controls. But no, so you, you should never, I mean, I know some people when they first heard about this talked about maybe we'll do just like level 800-171 across the board for like our entire organization. Uh, if you can do that, that, I mean, that, I'm sure that's great. That sounds very challenging and very expensive uh, and has some practical uh, concerns, at least from my perspective. But um, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. But I think in practice, you'll be able to have enclaves. And I'm actually going to talk about that a little bit more in broader perspectives. So I think that was all the questions. Yep, let's continue. Thank you. So um, I, there's a generalized question of like, well, why are all these current approaches failing? And um, I don't think there's no definitive answer, but these are basically my perspectives on that. Uh, the first one is that we've basically been doing a mix of overregulating and underregulating. So um, if you look at FISMA, I would say FISMA is overregulating. Like the core structure of FISMA, I think makes sense, but it just puts out too many controls. It just requires too much. There's too much paperwork. There's too much to do that um, it becomes overwhelming. People often aren't successful in even implementing that and they never get past it to actually just do security as they normally would. So there's some overregulating. And then there's also under-regulating, which you might say was like the NIST CSF approach, where we basically hope that the private sector is going to manage this on their own if we just give them the tools to help them. And that hasn't particularly worked either. And I would put CMMC back in the sort of over-regulating uh, category. And it, this ties directly into the second point, which is that it's very focused on technical controls. Uh, there's this might be because a lot of the standards that we've been uh, working with have uh, been promulgated by NIST and NIST is a very technical organization. Uh, everything when we're talking about security, it always feels like we're talking about controls and controls are not all of security. Like there's a lot that goes into security that these frameworks just don't even address. And as long as they keep doing that, I think they're gonna continue going into problems. And I'll, I'll discuss an alternative to this in a bit. There is a general assumption that more controls equals less risk or uh, you know, mitigated threats. Uh, in practice, I think this is often found not to be true. A lot of times uh, security software is itself a source of vulnerabilities and adding more controls and more complexity can actually make people's jobs harder rather than easier without a whole lot of corresponding risk reduction. Uh, the fourth one, I mean, you hear this a lot probably, but um, you know, security is not compliance, but a lot of times compliance can usurp security because compliance is a known, it's like, it's a risk. If you don't do compliance, you will not get the contract or you will get, uh, you know, you'll be uh, cited or something like that. You know, you'll have to pay a fine. So compliance just takes over and uh, organizations are not actually just doing security the way they naturally would. Uh, it's detached from the mission. So security is always about supporting the mission, but when you're taking these compliance approaches, security is no longer about a mission. Security is about being compliant. And finally, that uh, leadership has very limited cybersecurity decision-making skills. This is um, just like a broader perspective. And a lot of these uh, standards have not been designed to address this at all, right? The focus on technical controls is not very helpful if you are someone who does not have a technical background, but still has to make the decisions about cybersecurity risk. Uh, so will CMMC fix everything? I have been a sort of uh, persistent, uh, critic, I would say, of CMMC. I, it has problems that I have I've continued to point out and I don't think they've been well addressed. Um, I think the frequent changes have uh, been a, a sign that it continues to have problems. Uh, there's just a lot of persistent unanswered questions. And uh, it has also gotten some very high level criticism. So it's not just me over in my little corner, you know, being mad that people aren't listening to me. Uh, the former Undersecretary for uh, Acquisition, Sustainment, and Logistics, or currently now would be Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, uh, Frank Kendall, put out a, uh, 
a big op-ed basically, you know, heavily criticizing the CMMC prop, uh, framework and saying that it's saying it should all go away, basically. Uh, some of his uh, concerns are that it outsources an inherently governmental function, which is who gets contracts with the federal government. Uh, that decision is now has a barrier, which is a private sector organization, which we have already seen problems arise with. Uh, he highlights a bunch of potential legal problems. So Frank Kendall is a former lawyer. And so he sees a lot of the lawsuits that are probably going to rise up when people start getting denied their contracts. And uh, the thing that's denying them is not the government itself. And he also notes that there's just a very fundamental quality control and uh, incentives problem here, where let's say there's a marketplace of auditors. You don't want the auditor who's going to hold you to the toughest standard. You want the auditor who's going to hold you to the uh, you know, laxest standard. So the natural incentives of the system are to degrade quality. And uh, just like an overarching point is that, uh, so Katie Arrington, who is the, uh, again, the CISO in ANS, uh, is a political appointee. And one of the reasons why this whole system has been tried to be pushed through so quickly is because if there is like a regime change uh, come November, then uh, the whole framework could theoretically disappear because all the political appointees, which there are a lot of in the, in the Department of Defense, will get swapped over to uh, the, uh, the new regime. And so the original goal was, and I, I heard her say this at a presentation, you know, we need to have this thing, you know, up and running before November. Otherwise, you know, it might just disappear because there's a lot of pushback against it. Uh, I also note just that, you know, the world has had other problems like COVID, which have just made a new security standard a little bit less appealing than it already would be. Um, and so the final point I'll just kind of uh, touch on here is uh, assuming, which is maybe too optimistic now, I mean, they've done, they put a lot of work into the standard and it seems like it might be around to stay, but um, even if it weren't, the motivations for CMMC are not just going to disappear. And I definitely think some type of cybersecurity compliance is coming. Uh, and so uh, like the, the point about motivations though, when you go back to all of the initial things that CMMC said it was trying to address, uh, they said, we don't like POAMs, you know, because POAMs are basically a promise to do security in the future and we want security now. Like that's a, that's a valid point and that's not gonna go away. Like the desire to have security at the time of award of contract, not at some future date is real because that's, there's a clear risk there in that, you know, the time in between when the POAM is still just a POAM. The desire for enterprise-wide security, I think is also not gonna go away because the idea of enclaves has, I mean, it makes sense from a data specific approach, but like if the enclaves are not as, you know, cordoned off from the rest of the organization as we would like, then there's still potential for serious risk there. And if all of the vulnerabilities are arising outside of the enclave, like we still care about that. And we still wanna make sure that the entire organization at an organization wide level is secure. The problem is we don't have, the tools that we're working with are not designed for enterprise wide security. They're designed for data specific security or even system specific security. And um, yeah, so as I mentioned, many of these ideas I think are going to stick around. And I think that something like CMMC will probably, if CMMC disappears or is seriously reworked, I think the motivations are still going to be present. Okay, and I think this is my last slide. So what would good uh, cybersecurity compliance look like? Uh, this is my approach, obviously other people may disagree. I would take approach that is focused on minimal controls so focus on the high value known good controls, something like multi-factor authentication, uh, not the sort of laundry list approach that has been the sort of uh, standard that we've seen out of a lot of uh, the NIST standards like 853, 8171. Uh, I think they should, these uh, minimal controls should also be easily verifiable, right? We don't want a whole lot of um, like debate going on about whether or not something is actually implemented correctly. It should be pretty, you know, cut and dry. I think there should be more uh, more requirements focused on uh, programmatics and government uh, governance. So like, you know, saying you have to have a cybersecurity budget and maybe you have to tell us what your budget is. 
that you have to actually hire personnel, that you have to involve leadership, you know, basic stuff like that. And a lot of this I'm, I'm poaching from the Trusted CI Framework Project, which uh, regulars to this uh, webinar series have probably heard something about. Uh, I also think compliance, this would be harder, but aligning incentives is just one of the fundamental ways that you actually get good behavior. So the people who do tend to do security well are the people who are incentivized to do so. So sometimes you hear like uh, Netflix, I've heard has very good security. And one of the reasons for that is uh, if Netflix goes down for security reasons, then that's like, that's money that they're losing. And so their incentive is to keep their platform up and operational. So they have, you know, very high uh, availability concerns, you might say in the CIA world. Uh, I also think basic transparency about, you know, how, how well people are doing on their cybersecurity. And finally, providing resources. So, I mean, once you've got sort of like the, the basics, which a lot of this is, you know, it's, it's a minimum standard, it should be minimum. And then the goal is that people will then do security to support their own missions. And then you just provide them resources to help them. So you can, you know, whether it's uh, assessments or whether it's uh, consulting, something like that. But it's not telling them here's how to do security because security is going to be different depending on your environment. It's saying, all right, here's the bare minimum that everyone should do. And on top of that, let's help, but we're not gonna tell you exactly what you need. And with that, I am out of slides and I'm happy to take any questions you have for the next seven minutes or so. Yeah, um, I'm gonna go ahead and grab the screen back and just let the questions queue up. We've got one there so far. Sure. Um, let's see. Where did my Adobe go? Um, great. Again, so if you've got questions, um, we've got plenty of time, which is which is awesome. Um, and while people are typing, I'm going to go over a, a few things uh, related to Trusted CI. First of all, we've got a few community updates. Um, tomorrow, if you're available, we have this uh, Trusted CI is presenting at the Science Gateways webinar. Um, so that's tomorrow, Wednesday, October 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern. And it is going to be an overview of the Trustworthy Data Working Group's guidance report um, with our uh, our chairman, uh, Jim Basney. So if you want, if you're interested in going to that webinar, I'm going to go ahead and throw the URL in the chat because then it's actually clickable because you can't click on it when it's, when it's just a, me sharing a PDF like that. So if you're interested in attending that webinar, go ahead and um, click on that link that I just provided in the chat. And then also our next webinar is Monday, October 26th at 11 a.m. Eastern. And this is on RDP, enforcing security and privacy policies to protect research data with Yuan Tan. Um, and I will be posting um, an, uh, the registration link for that webinar um, ideally uh, October 12th or, or shortly after. And then um, also for Trusted CI, the fellows program, the 2021 fellows program, our application window is open. And um, we have, this is our third year um, with the fellows program and it has been a very rewarding experience for ourselves and uh, our members. And so if you are interested in becoming a Trusted CI Fellow, you, you can go to trustedci.org fellows. I just put a link in the chat again um, so that you can find out more information about the program. Um, okay, let's go back to questions. Um, we've got a question here. Do you need to have controls fully implemented across the enterprise to move? Oh, I'm sorry. I think we read that one already. Um, next one. Sorry. Do you see CMMC being pushed for university DOD research grants? Um, if it does not disappear, that is. Yeah. So we kind of discussed this a little bit earlier, but um, the current system is very focused on contracts. I think depending on the success of it will probably impact how much it is incorporated into other vehicles. So I think if CMMC continues pushing forward as it has, it would make sense that it would appear in research grants. But um, I can only, you know, based on what we currently have, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the structure for that would be yet. 
Um, next, uh, what, if any, enforcement mechanisms are associated with CMM CMMC beyond not being able to execute a contract? Yeah, so the, the not being able to get the contract is obviously the big one, because once you've got the contract, um, the only other really thing there is going to be breach of contract stuff. So if you like somehow fraudulently get uh, your CMMC accreditation, uh, then it could be potentially a source of breach. Um, I, if, when I talked about this earlier about how CUI didn't have um, a, an enforcement mechanism, I had an asterisk there because um, there is basically a statute that says um, if you lie to the government uh, in these uh, federal contracts, that there is a mechanism where you can be uh, you know, penalized for that basically. And so that probably would apply here as well. But I mean, the idea being if you, you're accredited, you know, you've, you've put in all the controls and you've gotten, you've been certified, uh, as long as you don't like immediately then dismantle your CMMC apparatus, it's unlikely that there's going to be uh, a whole lot else that's going to happen to you until you have to recertify. Um, we have a few questions here queued up. Scott, are you available to stick behind uh, for a few minutes to go to run through them? Yeah, sure. Okay, great. Um, what is your opinion of COGR's ask to exempt fundamental research from CMMC? Yeah, so I mean, I think exempting fundamental research uh, makes sense in some ways and maybe doesn't make sense in others. And um, I, it's not totally clear to me how they will approach that. So um, exemptions for fundamental research are things that we have seen in other areas of the law. I think export control is probably the one most well known. The thing about export control is that it's possible the fundamental research prong, like there's some First Amendment considerations that might be going on with that. Uh, I think the idea that fundamental research doesn't need to be protected, I'm not sure if uh, the authors of CMMC would agree with that, and that they might say, look, this is just as important as anything else, maybe more important. And uh, level one is presumably not that onerous. So they might just say, we'll just do it anyways. This, you know, it's security, it's a good idea. I don't think it would be a bad idea to exempt fundamental research. I think, uh, especially for, you know, people who are only sort of dipping their toe into the DOD space, uh, the potential of an entire compliance regime can be daunting. And so if there is a fundamental research exception that allows people to continue to work with the DOD without having to deal with all the compliance, that's probably a, uh, a good thing from just like a accessibility perspective. But um, I'm, I'm not sure how the DOD will actually approach that question. I could see them saying, no, fundamental research is still important. We don't want uh, people stealing it or tampering with it. So we're gonna require at least basic security. Uh, next question, are previous awarded DOD contracts grandfathered in? Uh, it depends what you mean by grandfathered, but to, to answer the question, I think you're probably asking, uh, CMMC will only appear in contracts uh, that are forthcoming. So no one with a current contract is going to suddenly get a clause that will spring up in their contract. Uh, just for basic contract law reasons that can't be done, right? You signed a contract with certain terms, you can't unilaterally change those terms without some additional consideration or at least mutual agreement. So um, yeah, if you have an existing DOD contract, don't need to worry about CMMC for right now. But if you wanna continue doing uh, business with the Department of Defense, uh, it might be that when you try to get that contract re-upped, uh, there might be a CMMC clause in that new contract. Um, it looks like we've got almost like a revolving door question here. Are there any means for making sure that auditors, being that they're private entities, are not jumping from positions as auditors and then transitioning into companies that they have audited in the past or will audit in the future? Yeah, so this is, I mean, so if you'll recall, I mentioned uh, Frank Kendall's critiques and a lot of them basically went to the sort of misaligned incentives of the private sector accreditation body. and. Um, this is one of those questions where this is obviously a, an undesirable outcome that I'm sure everyone would agree is something that should not happen. I am not sure of any structure in place currently that would actually prevent it. And I know that the accreditation body already has kind of been in hot water 
for some apparent sort of conflict of interest type behavior. So uh, some people may have saw that they basically put out this, this very strange like metal program where you could donate money to the accreditation body and get like a, a little star. I, I don't even remember what they were calling it, but you know, you could give half a million dollars and you get like a platinum thing next to your name that says, oh, this is like a, a CMMC favored company. It was very strange and had clear conflict questions and it was eventually uh, backed off of because of those conflicts. I think the answer to your question is, I don't know. Uh, this is obviously something, you know, so auditors who then uh, basically then go work for the companies that they previously audited would obviously be problematic. I just don't know what the mechanism would be for that, except that it would almost certainly be internal to the accreditation body. I don't think DOD is playing any, any role in those. Um, we got a question. Will the presentation be posted? Yes. Um, I just update, I moved to this other slide, you can visit trustedci.org slash webinars or email us at webinars at trustedci.org if you've got feedback or have uh, questions uh, for topics and, and things like that. Um, so let's continue. Do you have, uh, do you recommend cyber professionals invest in acquiring the assessor certifications, for example, RPCPCA? Is this the new certification folks will start acquiring? Uh, that's a good question. I, I'm of two minds. I think, as I mentioned, I have always been a little bit more on the skeptical side for all of CMMC. I, I've always felt that it had problems. And so I, you know, I have been thinking that it'll either change or disappear and come back in some new form. But I think that if you are someone who does uh, cybersecurity assessments like that is, or you, you want to basically be in the business of auditing, that this is obviously going to be a very big marketplace for auditing. And uh, I wouldn't get it just as like a certification to put like, you know, on your resume or something like that. I don't think that unless you're applying for a job where you are going to be doing assessments, I would be very pragmatic about it. Um, I don't think this is something that will just be like a feather in the cap that shows that I'm a knowledgeable security professional, but that's just my opinion. Um, another question, uh, since Congress put the foundation of CMMC in the 2020 NDAA, how realistic is it that it, this all hangs on um, Katie, I forgot her last name, I apologize, Katie yeah, Arrington, Jen. yeah. Um, also FCA in addition to contract breach. Yeah, yeah, the FCA, that was, I was mentioning that earlier. Um, yeah, the NDAA question is interesting. I haven't looked at the NDAA in... Uh, great detail. I am still of the opinion that, so as I mentioned, I have, I've, some of this is like, I've been talking about this for a while. And so a year ago when I was talking about this, I was like, all of this seems completely wildly unrealistic. I don't, I don't think these uh, deadlines are going to happen. I think this thing is just going to have problems until it dis potentially disappears. As it has slowly sort of uh, embedded itself into the DOD infrastructure more and more, uh, I've, I've sort of softened that language, I would say. And I'm, I'm, as you can hear now, I am kind of, you know, going back and forth. I still think it has problems. And I still think that um, if there is regime change in November, that there is a pretty decent chance that this will be overhauled in some way. But um, again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier is that even if CMMC as it's currently envisioned uh, disappears and is reformulated, uh, the motivations for it are not going to go away. And the DOD is clearly going to be pushing something because they need to secure the defense industrial base. And uh, it's probably going to be a compliance system because the non-compliance systems have not been uh, effective. So I think, I think the implication of your question is right, that uh, this is not going to go away completely. And then we've got one more question here. We've heard threats from Department of Education to go to using CUI standards. Do you think they might move to a CMMC model instead? Uh, well, it would depend a little bit what you mean when you say go to CUI standards. So te technically anyone who is handling CUI, whether or not you are in the Department of Education or just have a contract with them, uh, you have to you know, adhere to the CUI uh, requirements at 800-171, wherever that CUI is. So it's like I said earlier, the controls flow with the data. So I don't know 
I mean, if the Department of Education is threatening CUI standards, I would have to assume that means applying CUI standards even when you are not handling CUI. So it just becomes like a general purpose uh, cybersecurity requirement. Um, if that's if that's not what you're uh, intending, please correct me. Um, I think the possibility of moving to a CMMC. So I think, well, I should say on the previous point, um, I would be surprised to hear that. I'm not sure that they have the regulatory authority to do that, but I'm not particularly familiar with the Department of Education and if they are, if, if they are able to like regulate universities in such a way. Uh, a CMMC model would make more sense, I think, because it has CUI as its level three, and then there's a lesser level one, which is some requirements, but not a ton. But um, I can't really say more about that, not knowing any details. I think I saw Anurag rose his hand. Anurag might know more about this. Yeah, so Anurag, he's uh, pointed out in the chat that um, if you have, uh, if anything from FERPA, you know, is going to be under CUI, I forget what the specific type of data is under FERPA that you would have to protect. But if you are handling that type of data, it will be CUI. And so you would have to follow the CUI standards. But if they were threatening it as um, like a broader requirement for CUI, just across the board, even when you are not handling the CUI standards, uh, that would be that would be quite a move, and um, I would be surprised to hear that. It says it look he he sent a follow up. Anurag said um, they have a dear colleague letter out saying it should be protected as per eight hundred one seven one. This is going to be a huge problem since FERPA data is everywhere. Okay, I see. So if I'm if I'm reading this right, basically you're saying that there is potentially a category of data that is unclear whether it is currently CUI and they're currently saying that we're going to consider treating it as CUI. Um, I mean, it's, it, that just kind of goes back to how you feel about uh, CUI in 800-171. I think the, my concern with it is similar to a lot of my concerns, whereas I feel like it, it is kind of over prescriptive in what it requires. Uh, but the general idea is valid that if data has to be protected when it is held by the federal government and the federal government transfers data to you or um, employs you to be someone to generate that data for the federal government, that the same protections should apply to it. But there is always the practical concern that um, CUI controls are expensive, uh, relatively, and um, the more you have to spread that out, the uh, the more of an issue it is for the people who, who have to implement it. Great. Well, this was awesome. I mean, we had um, plenty of questions from the audience. I, I was, I was definitely excited to, to see some of these, um, these updates. And I kind of foresee us having another webinar with you perhaps in a, in a six months or so to see if, if CMMC is still on the table, then what, what now? Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I appreciate you preemptively accepting my offer to present. <laughs> no, thank you for having me. Yeah. yeah. Never um, a dull day in the cybersecurity regulation and compliance space. It, it really isn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thanks again, Scott, for coming and presenting today. Uh, thank you all of you in the audience for watching. I'll be posting this pretty, pretty soon, like maybe within a day. Um, so be on the lookout for that. You can find it at trustedci.org slash webinars, or I also post it to the announcements list. Um, so thanks again, everyone, for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll see you uh, at, at the next webinar. Um, any final uh, comments, Scott? Uh, no, just thank you for having me. And uh, thank you all for sticking around for an extra 10 minutes. Great. Uh, see you next time, everyone.